Please turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 92, reading verses 1 through 4. Next week we'll actually be starting a series of sermons through the book of Ecclesiastes. So today, going to uh, preach on the life of Charles Spurgeon, which I'm sure many of you know. And I'm starting with this particular passage. I think it will become much more clear towards the end of the sermon. But at least it's there, hopefully, in your minds, something to keep in your thoughts as we kind of work through our time this morning. So talking about the life of Spurgeon and then concluding with uh, one particular lesson that we can draw from his life. And volumes and many books have been written on the life of Spurgeon, and so here's my little meager attempt to condense this into a two-hour sermon. Not that long. Still. Um, Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4. We'll read, say a quick prayer, then we'll kind of jump in. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we come before you and we just want to worship you again and thank you for giving us this time in this new year to declare your excellencies through song, to pray to you, and now to to sit under your word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to look at the life of one who's come before us, to look at the person's life, their trials, and God, that we may be able to learn from his life lessons that we see in the scriptures as well. And so help us to receive with hands that are open. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul had once said words that are famous. Now, in the book of Philippians, he had once said and written that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, a hard press between the two. He had also wrote in the book of Colossians, Him that is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that or so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Incredible words, encouraging words. That I'm sure that he meant those words with a great exuberance and joy. And they mean that much more when you consider the context in which Paul wrote those letters. Right? If you've been, working, if you've been following along last, this last year, as we've gone through the book of Philippians, then you know that Paul wrote some of these words when he was in prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's kind of hard to fathom that a man like this can proclaim these kinds of words, knowing all the hardships and all the trials and even the persecution that he endured on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet he could say or have this tension between living or departing and be with Christ, struggling for the sake of Christ and the cause of the gospel and for the sake of the church. Charles Spurgeon once said, I feel that if I could live a thousand lives, I would like to live them all for Christ. And I should even then feel that they were all too little a return for his great love to me. When I first read those words, I wondered, and having read as much as I could on his life, I wondered if he would say those same words towards the end of his life. Having experienced all that he experienced, all the trials, all the testing of his faith that he had to endure for the sake of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do this morning is to take you through the life of Charles Spurgeon very briefly, talking about his life, his ministry, some of the trials he's experienced, and then concluding with one particular lesson from his life. So let's begin with the life of Spurgeon, talking about his early life and conversion. Charles Spurgeon was born in Calvadon, England in June 19, 1834. His parents, John and Eliza Spurgeon, had a total of 17 children. However, only eight survived infancy. He lived with his grandparents for a significant amount of time, but even after he moved back with his parents, he visited his grandparents often. His grandfather himself being a pastor to an independent congregation, at least, until eight, at least since 1810. Now, at an early age, Charles Spurgeon had a keen eye, a sharp mind, an incredible perception. He, know, he would take notice of a lot of things that you and I would just not ever notice. He would often engage in a lot of theological conversations and discussions with his, with his grandfather and those who were guests of his grandfather. He was also a lover of books. He read voraciously. His grandfather, in fact, had his room full of many books, and Spurgeon would frequent that room very, on, a, on a daily basis. And, he would, and it was there that he came across the Puritans, and he would read up on a lot of the Puritans. And he read them so much and admired them so much and was taught by them so much that scholars and biographers and historians would even consider Spurgeon himself a sort of Puritan because he conducted a lot of his life and ministry in a very Puritan-like manner. Spurgeon also had frequent theological discussions with his father, who was also an itinerant preacher, and with his father's guests. And so he very much grew up in a Christian home, his father being away from home a lot of the time, a lot of the instruction was left to his mother, and his mother was very faithful in instructing their children in the ways of salvation. And at times, his father would be, feel a sense of guilt to have to leave so often to provide for his family and leave a lot of the instruction left to Charles's mother. But then one biographer says this, his father, Charles's father, recognized the massive weight that the mother's prayers exerted specifically on Charles. During a ceremony and laying the first stone for the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1859, John Spurgeon shared the story 
of the mother's earnest prayers. He wrote, I believe under God's grace, his mother has been the means of leading him to Christ. I came home one evening about seven o'clock and went upstairs. I heard the voice of a mother pleading for her boy, Charles, and talking to him and the others and pouring her heart out in prayer in such a way as I never did in my life and as I never heard before. After that, he never felt that leaving the children in the hands of such a mother was at all neglectful. Now, prior to Charles's conversion, he knew very well of his desperate need of salvation. He knew he needed the Lord. He knew that he needed rescue from his sins. And yet he himself would admit that he did not believe, not because he did not want to, but he just could not. No matter how much he wanted to, he could not conjure up the faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until January of 1850 that he finally experienced the new birth. Spurgeon was 16 years old at the time. School had let out early because of a snowstorm, so he was on his way home. He came across a church, and so he went into the church and seek some refuge from the storm. And he was walking into the middle of a service. And it was a small congregation because of the snowstorm, and even the pastor himself did not make it to the church. Instead, it was one of the lay people, I think it was even a deacon, that was preaching at that time. And he preached a brief message on Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. This man, noticing a stranger in the congregation, looks to Charles Spurgeon intently, and he says, Look, look, look unto Jesus Christ, and be saved. And Spurgeon, in that moment, looked to Christ, and he was saved. As he describes, he said that he saw the way of salvation that day and in that moment. Then, not long after his conversion, he actually began to teach in Sunday school, and it was here that many people began to see his extraordinary gifts. And so many, actually, adults flocked to his Sunday school lessons. And he always desired to preach, even before he was converted. He actually desired to preach, which is quite odd. But he really desired to preach, and that desire never, never went away. And so he, became, he went under the tutelage of this, this teacher, pastor, along with some others. And so he was sent on his first preaching assignment to a church that needed a pastor or a preacher during one Sunday service. And although he did not know he was going to preach... He was sent along with another fellow student of his. And now, the other guy thought that Spurgeon was going to preach, but Spurgeon thought the other guy was going to preach. So in their conversation, as they were walking towards the church, they both discovered none of them were prepared to preach. So Spurgeon decided that he would then take on the task. Without preparation, he had some thoughts. He meditated on some things. As he made his way to the church, he preached his first message, and it was well-received people began to notice some extraordinary gifts in the life of this man. And he would be invited again. And throughout that year, he continued to preach at several different churches. Later in 1851, he took another preaching assignment at a Baptist chapel. 
And this resulted in his being invited by that same chapel two more times. Then in 1852, the church officially called him to be their pastor. He was only 18 years old at that time. And he accepted it. Now, it's ill-advised for any 18-year-old to start leading a church because almost no 18-year-old has the kind of maturity that it requires to lead a church. Even if you're 25 or 30 years old, doesn't necessarily mean you have the maturity. Now, for somebody like Spurgeon, who had these extraordinary gifts given to him by the Lord, somebody like that also requires an incredible amount of maturity. And he certainly did. So he accepted this pastorate. Two years later, the small church grew to over 400 people with many others even standing outside to hear him preach. Then in 1853, New Park Street Chapel in London took an interest in Charles Spurgeon, and they would eventually call him to be their pastor, which he prayerfully accepted. And then much later, having outgrown the 1,200-capacity building, the church would construct a new building with a 6,000-person capacity, and that would be renamed as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now Spurgeon, whether you, maybe you know this or not, Spurgeon was an absolute genius. He was a voracious reader, and he was so for all his life. In fact, he would read at least six substantial books a week, he could tell you exactly what he read. He can tell you exactly what he found in each book and exactly where to find it. Not only that, but he preached anywhere from four to ten times per week, edited his sermons for publication, knew every single member of his 6,000 church by name, edited a monthly magazine, lectured, and over his lifetime written 150 books. And if that isn't enough, he directed a theological college for pastors, ran an orphanage, and oversaw 66 Christian charities. I mean, the man was a machine. I mean, almost nobody is like that. And the number of people that were converted through his ministry, it's numbered in the thousands. His sermons were printed each week that he edited and were produced, were published, and they were translated into 20 different languages spread across the globe. People reading his sermons would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was an extraordinarily gifted man with also the gift of evangelism. And the gift of evangelism, I take it to be somebody who is gifted by the Spirit of God to be able to strike up a conversation with a random person and have it lead to the gospel of Jesus Christ or starting up a conversation about anything and leading it to and directing it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gift that somebody, I think, has that comes with a certain boldness and courage to share the gospel at any time and at any moment. And by the way, it's a particular office of the church. According to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians tells us that Christ gifted to the church the office of apostles, which isn't an office existing today, but he also gifted to the church the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Right? One of my prayers is that the Lord would gift to our church evangelists, people who are uniquely gifted with evangelism. And if you are that gifted person, you need to speak up. Because I've been praying for you. <laughs> 
But he, in addition to that particular gift of evangelism, there's something else that came with this gift of evangelism. Because if you read about his ministry and how many people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's not only that, that Spurgeon had, a, power, had a, a passion for the gospel and evangelism, but it's also that people were converted through his sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, there was one particular moment when he was invited to this, audit, to this place, and it was a large auditorium. It was about 18 to 20,000 person capacity. He goes early. Nobody's there yet to test the acoustics of the location, of the, of, the, of, the, of the building. He just proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know what happened? There was a person up in the rafters working. He heard those words, thought about those words, and he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The man had a, a gift for evangelism and a gift that the Lord used to bring many people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord had uniquely gifted him to do all this work for the sake of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone had once asked him, how are you able to do the work of two men? And Spurgeon replied by saying, you forget that there are two of us, meaning the Holy Spirit. And it would be such a temptation for any of us to be driven toward man-pleasing, to grow and swell up in pride, to have that kind of talent, to have that kind of gift, to have that kind of popularity, to have that kind of success in ministry. But it was never the case for Spurgeon. He had such a love for people, and such a love for the gospel, and such a deep desire for people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He once wrote, I remember when I have preached at different times in the country and sometimes here, being in his own church, that my whole soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. It was one of the most driving passions of his life to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now with regards to his family, and I'll be very brief here because there's a lot to say, Charles' wife was Susanna, whom he married in January of 1856. Together they had two children, twin boys, Thomas and Charles Jr. This would become their only children because his wife would become an invalid and she was so ill that she could not even get out of the house to hear her own husband preach at church. But she described her marriage as two pilgrims treading this highway of life together, hand in hand, heart linked to heart. They had an incredible marriage where they were supporting one another, even though it was incredibly difficult, even though at first it was hard for her to be married to this man who was demanded by so many people. But she came quickly to realize that she's not married to a normal man. They both worked together in encouraging their boys to study and learn the Westminster Catechism. Although much of the instruction was left to Susanna, which she delighted in, she would 
appeal, uh, she would make an appeal to her children to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would sing hymns together, and then at times she would stop the, the hymns and proclaim exactly what they were singing, and she would even go on to tell their boys, you cannot sing this particular part because this particular part is actually for believers, and until you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this particular part of the hymn doesn't apply to you. But she would pray for her children, for her two boys, instruct them in the ways of salvation, and the Lord granted them their request. They both became believers and followers of Jesus Christ, and even ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even preaching at Spurgeon's church. So 30 plus years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, seeing thousands of people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thousands of baptisms. But his life wasn't without trials. And this is the second part. No man or woman of God is ever without trial. Right? And if you know anything about Spurgeon, if you know anything about his, the fruits of his ministry, the many people that were saved under his ministry, it's easy to come to think that his life may have been easy, even though he had worked tirelessly. It's easy to sort of to think that the Lord had best blessed this man mightily so that he may not have endured, have had to endure such trials. But that actually was not the case. Spurgeon understood that the trials of his life, whether they were permitted or even directly authored by God, that they were ultimately for his own good. They were immense, and they had such a profound impact on his mind and his heart. Now, given the, his, the size of his popularity, it's, it is no wonder that he would draw a lot of criticism, right? The bigger your popularity, the bigger the target you are, and the more that you are likely to draw criticism from all of the world. And there have been, throughout periods of his life, relentless criticisms which led to many a sleepless nights, especially early in his ministry. He took criticism from periodicals to even other ministers. Correspondents and editors called his preaching a prostitution of the pulpit. The vulgar colloquial varied by rant. Insolence so unblushing, intellect so feeble. Puppet buffoonery. Execrable display. And there were a lot worse things that people had said about him. One biographer said, that Spurgeon learned, therefore, to try, especially of late, to regard both man's praise and censure as unworthy of notice. But to fix my heart simply on this, I know that I have a right motive in what I attempt to do. I am conscious that I endeavor to serve God with a single eye to his glory. And therefore, it is not for me to take praise from man nor censure, but to stand independently upon the one rock of right doing. Now, in addition to the criticism that he received because of his popularity, he was also a man of controversy, not because he, was, he always gravitated towards controversy and sought to stir up controversy for the sake of controversy, but simply because he was a preacher who stood for the truth. And during this time, this, sort of the, the theological 
climate was one that was bent towards what's called Arminianism, which essentially taught that God does not choose people before the, before the foundations of the world, but rather God looks forward into time and can see who will believe, and those are the ones that God chooses. And that man essentially has an ability to conjure up faith and believe in the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, the theology and the doctrine that, Spuritan, that, that, that Spurgeon stood for, which was very much taken from the Puritans, is what became, is, is now known as the doctrines of grace, or infamously, unfortunately, known as Calvinism, which essentially teaches that God actually elects or chooses people before the foundations of the world. He does not look forward in time to see who will believe. No, God chooses the people who will, who, who will cause to believe. The doctrines of grace also teach that, that this choosing is based on an unconditional election, that God chooses people irrespective of who they are, irrespective of what they have done. These doctrines of grace also teach the limited atonement of Jesus Christ, meaning that Christ came into the world to save a certain amount of people, as opposed to the other way, or Arminianism, which was the climate of the day that taught that Christ came into the world to die for the sins of all people. But the problem the doctrines of grace proclaimed was that if that is the case, then that means that Christ's death on the cross was insufficient for a lot of people. Because if it means that Christ died for the sins of everybody and not everybody is saved, then his death really isn't all that effective. But instead, Christ came into the world to save a particular people and that they are saved to the uttermost. Doctrines of Grace also taught the depravity of man, that not that nobody is capable of good, but rather that the heart of man, that every facet of his being, his heart, mind, inclinations, affections, are all corrupted by sin, and that nobody actually is able to conjure up within his own self to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they are dependent upon the Lord to grant that faith. And lastly, the doctrines of grace also taught the perseverance of the saints, and that is that those who are truly saved will endure to the end, and that those who are truly saved will be kept until the very end by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what he preached, this is what he taught, and in turn, he received a lot of criticism, and many even considered him to be a heretical preacher. Not only that, but he spoke openly against the formality of the pulpit. Not necessarily speaking about the pastor's dress, but speaking about his demeanor towards the congregation. It was very much a professionalism between the preacher and the congregation. There was no persuading. There was no compelling. There was no appealing people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he spoke against this formality in the pulpit. And he also proclaimed or stood against infant baptism, even though he did regard many infant baptizers as brothers and sisters in Christ, but he just considered them wrong. Regardless, it was around these things that he drew a lot of, or stirred up a lot of controversy. Essentially, what he tended to do was just to stand for the truth and proclaim the truth unashamedly. 
However, the biggest controversy of his life is what became known as the downgrade controversy. So his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, belonged to the Baptist Union, which is a network of Baptist churches, all like-minded churches surrounding themselves under essential doctrines. It's sort of familiar, familiar with the Southern Baptist Convention. It's similar to that, but on a much smaller scale. A network of churches believing the same things. However, the union began to lax many of its standards, which only paved the way for heretical doctrine. And this wasn't specific to London or to that particular region. This seems to be sort of the tendency across the world at the time. So, for example, an article was written during this time in 1887 highlighting the case of Andover Theological Seminary. That's right in Massachusetts and in Andover, where they had five professors who believed the Bible to be fallible, that is, that the Bible contains many errors, and who proclaimed and taught in the seminary context against divine revelation and against divine inspiration. And Andover Theological Seminary, to this day, still does not teach orthodox teaching. Now, how do you even get professors like that into what was once an orthodox and sound school or institution? It happens when the school loosens its creeds, its tenets of the faith, its essential doctrines of the faith. And this is what was happening in the Baptist Union in Spurgeon's time. Because of its loosening some of the tenets, the tenets of the orthodox doctrine, the Baptist, they had Baptist pastors in the Union who did not believe in divine inspiration and revelation, who believed that the Bible contained many errors. And so Spurgeon struggled long with the Union, had correspondences, wrote letters, spoke to sort of the, the person who was the executive over the Baptist Union to no avail, and eventually led him, he led his church to be to withdraw from the Baptist Union. And a move like that doesn't go unnoticed, especially given the popularity, the size of his church. I mean, essentially the whole world knew about it. And that in turn drew a lot of criticism towards Spurgeon. And effectively what he was saying through his withdrawal from the Union was that this Union is no longer holding to orthodox teaching, to salvific Doctrine, teaching that is essential for faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in turn, the Baptist Union decided to censure Spurgeon, meaning that they held Spurgeon to be the one who was unorthodox and unable to stand with brothers and sisters in Christ. And this then led to a lot of criticism. Friends abandoned him. It led to public humiliation and shame. And it took such an emotional toll on his life that some biographers and those closest to him would say that the downgrade controversy worsened his already debilitating health and was instrumental in causing his early death. And that wasn't all. Speaking of his illnesses, Spurgeon suffered from gout, which is a swelling of the joints that leads to severe, severe pain. He overworked himself, which led to constant stress, and he would often feel guilty for feeling stressed. And also, throughout most of his life, he struggled with severe depression. At one moment, here's this pastor, preacher, who's exuberant, joyful, glad, and then the next moment, for no apparent reason, he would be sobbing like a baby. 
And throughout his life, in different times, in different seasons, these things led to complete debilitation. There was also one tragic event that took such a toll on his life from which he never fully recovered. It may have worsened his depression, or may have even caused his depression. And this was the Surrey Gardens Music Hall disaster. In October of 1856, he was 22, prior to the building of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they rented out a space that was larger in order to hold services, to hold all their members. And on the first Sunday of their meeting, on the first evening of their service, during a time of prayer, and this was, a, this was a, a, an auditorium that had an 8 to 10,000 person capacity, and it was filled. During this one Sunday evening, during a time of prayer, somebody suddenly shouts out, fire! And immediately it turns the crowd into a frenzy, and a stampede ensues. Seven people die, and 28 are seriously injured. And even after 25 years of this life, he still seemed to suffer from a sort of PTSD from this event. There were times when he was invited to different locations, and he would be overcome with fear because he could not help but think about that tragic event. One friend of his even went so far as to say that Spurgeon's early death might be in some measure due to the furnace of mental suffering he endured on and after that fearful night. And can you imagine then the amount of criticism that he received and the amount of blame that he received for that tragic event? Yes, an enduring and prosperous ministry, thanks to the Lord. 30 plus years of ministry. But that is 30 plus years of suffering and trials. Physical, his physical health, the criticism, the standing for truth, the being censured, humiliated by the public, by even those he once called the brothers in Christ. Spurgeon entered the gates of heaven at the early age of 57. Given how much he overworked himself, given all that he endured, I'm personally surprised that he was able to live that long. So then having considered the trials of his life, then what lesson can we draw? So one particular lesson from Spurgeon But first, let's talk about the doctrine of regeneration. And I promise this is still in the context of his life and ministry. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is sort of like the Baptist faith and message that some of you may be familiar to, something that we hold to as a church, though I think the 1689 Confession is much better. In its paragraph on sanctification, in paragraph 3, it says, Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life, in which evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. So through the regeneration, through the new life in Jesus Christ, where there is still this remaining corruption in our lives that sometimes gets the better of us, 
but through the strength that comes through the Spirit of God, there is an overcoming of that corruption. This regeneration, this being born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ is what leads the saint to grow in grace, to pursue a perfection in holiness, a pressing on after the heavenly life, and then evangelical obedience according to the word of the Lord. It is with this understanding that the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that you and I were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but have been made alive in Christ through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Regeneration, to put it simply, is being made alive in Jesus Christ, believing in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection on behalf of sinners. Now, this particular doctrine, this regeneration, this understanding of regeneration was absolutely vital to the life of Charles Spurgeon. It's because he was alive in Jesus Christ that led him to work so hard, perhaps negatively so, the debilitation of his own health, to work so tirelessly for the sake of the gospel and the church, to preach as he did, to give his life for the preaching and evangelism of the gospel, to see people saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what helped him to endure the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions of his life. He not only understood, intellectually understood this teaching, but it is something that he embraced with his life. And it leads to how he would respond to different trials. Spurgeon wholeheartedly believed that every trial of his life was ordained by God and for his own good. If he hadn't understood that, there is no way that he could have withstood all that he did. And I think the reason for his many trials was to keep him humble. I mean, there's no way for a person to not become prideful through the gifts, the talents, through the prosperous ministry that he experienced. God uses trials and the testing of faith in order to keep his people humble. It is what helped Spurgeon to continue to cast himself upon the Lord. One writer says that Spurgeon saw that our Heavenly Father ordains suffering for believers. Through our trials, though our trials may come from the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are overruled and ordained by God who treats them as, as an important part for our new life in Christ. For a start, we simply could not be like Christ if we are not treated like Christ. If we have a life of ease when he, Christ, had so much pain. Spurgeon wrote, do you expect to be crowned with gold where he was crowned with thorns? Shall lilies grow for you and briars for him? One writer says, tears, Spurgeon discovered through experience, can clear the eye so that we see with an improved vision and perspective. Losses reveal the insufficiency of all things around us that we cherish, enabling us to appreciate the all-sufficiency of Christ more. For just as we enjoy the stars better when it is dark, so when all is dark in life around us, we can enjoy heavenly glories better. This aliveness that God causes in us through faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes it shows itself through an external joy, 
Sometimes it's an exuberance. Sometimes it's a happy demeanor. But sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, that kind of aliveness is a patient endurance and waiting for the Lord to come through in the times of trial. Sometimes that aliveness, that new birth, that new life that you have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way sometimes that that lived, is lived out is through sobbing, is through tears, is through crying out to the Lord in your private prayer closet. God's means many times in our lives of making us more holy and more like Christ is to bring trials in our life in order to make us that much more fit for heaven. And Spurgeon understood this so well. Spurgeon was able to endure such trials in his life because essentially he was alive in Christ. And he intended and he sought to maintain this aliveness that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you yourself are a Christian born again through the Spirit of God, how do you maintain this aliveness that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you live out this new birth through the gospel of Jesus Christ, no longer dead in sin and trespasses, but made alive in Christ? Spurgeon would answer to never neglect your spiritual meals or you will lack stamina and your spirits will sink. Live on the substantial doctrines of grace and you will outlive and outwork those who delight in the, in the pastry of modern thought. Above all, feed the flame with intimate fellowship with Christ. No man was ever cold in heart who lived with Jesus. One of, the, the, one of the things that Spurgeon understood so well about being alive in Jesus Christ is how essential joy is to the Christian life. He once said, joy has many clear health-giving properties. It is, in a sense, the handmaiden of holiness. Joy in the Lord has the power to strengthen believers against temptation for when we find our happiness and satisfaction in Christ, we will not seek it elsewhere. So if you're struggling with temptation, if you're struggling with sin, one of the antidotes is joy in the Lord. Pursue joy and the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Seek satisfaction and happiness in the Lord. When you pursue that, when you earnestly pray for such joy and satisfaction, the enticements and the lures and the temptations of the flesh and the world and the devil become that much less stronger. That much less enticing. And if you struggle with despondency or with depression, how do you fight for vitality? How do you fight for this aliveness, this joy in the Lord? He answers, despondency which he knew from personal experience, which has this leeching effect on us, that it saps vitality, replacing praise and thanksgiving with a grumble. Therefore, Spurgeon advised to maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving. This is one of the best ways to keep yourselves in spiritual health. 
continually thanking the Lord, being grateful for salvation, for His provision, is a way to maintain a vitality and a joy and to help fight against the despondency that you might struggle with. Some of you may be walking around with the guilt of sin and shame, perhaps sins committed this morning, perhaps yesterday, perhaps this past week, perhaps you're walking around with the guilt of sin and shame that has come from years ago. And in those times, right, you may not desire to pursue the Lord. But Spurgeon has something to say to that. When anguish fills the heart and the spirits are bruised with sore pain and travail, it is not the best season for forming a candid judgment of our own condition or of anything else. Let the judging faculty lie by and let us with tears of loving confession throw ourselves upon our Father's bosom. Looking up to his face, believe that he loves us with all his infinite heart. We walk as pilgrims in this world, and sometimes in this pilgrimage there is trial, there is suffering, there's a testing of our faith. And in those moments, it is much easier to be anything but alive to Christ. Being alive to Christ sometimes is prayer, sometimes it's confession, sometimes it's sobbing, sometimes it's pleading, sometimes it's just going before the Lord in tears and letting the tears and the weeping do the crying out before the Lord. But even those things are evidences of your aliveness in Jesus Christ. This is what an, a person that is alive to Christ does. We must continue to maintain this aliveness. We must continue to pursue this joy in the Lord that we seek to imitate from the life of Spurgeon, even though he suffered agonizingly at many times in his life. And we must do so through prayer. We must do so through the Word. We must do so through trusting God through the trials and casting ourselves upon Him. And in this way, we must maintain our joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord must be your strength. It is this joy that we read in Psalm 92. This aliveness, the person who is alive to God, what this person does is give thanks to the Lord. They sing praises to the name of God. They declare the steadfast love of the Lord. They can proclaim even in the midst of trials and despondency, Lord, you have made me glad by your work. And at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Let me leave you with this last quote from Spurgeon that really, I think, helps capture the joy of the Christian. He says, Bring hither the poorest peasant. Let her, if you will, be an aged woman, wrinkled and haggard with labor and with years. Let her be ignorant of all learning. But let me know that in her there is faith in Christ and that consequently the Holy Ghost dwells in her. I will reverence her above all emperors and kings, for she is above them. What are these crowned ones but men who perhaps have waded through slaughter to a throne while she has been uplifted by the righteousness of Jesus? 
Their dynasty is, after all, a mushroom growth. But she is of the blood royal of the skies. She has God within her. Christ is waiting to receive her into his bliss. Heaven's inhabitants without her could not be perfected, nor God's purpose be fulfilled. Therefore, she is noblest of the noble. Judge not after the sight of the eyes, but judge ye after the mind of God, and let saved sinners be precious in your sight. This is the joy of the Christian, to know that they carry in themselves this aliveness, this royal blood that they share with Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that one day they will be united with Jesus Christ in his heavenly kingdom. And they are to be judged most precious in the sight of all, above all kings, above all dynasties, above all those who are the most rich and powerful in the world. God sees them as the most precious. God sees you as the most precious. And let that fuel your joy in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we Father, we come before you and we we desire for more joy in the Lord. And sometimes this Lord, this joy just waxes and wanes with the times, with the seasons, with the things that we have to endure and struggle with in this life. But Lord, give to us an enduring joy. Give us the joy that comes with being alive in Jesus Christ. Help us to pursue those things that give to us the strength to walk as pilgrims in this this world. Help us to not neglect the spiritual meals of the word and prayer and fellowship with the saints. Lord, help us to learn from your scriptures, to learn from this man's life what it means to cast ourselves upon the Lord. Help us to learn what it means to have joy in the Lord. Help us to know what it means to be alive to Christ despite the things that we may have to endure in this life. Help us, we Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus. Help us to struggle with all our might as we pursue the heavenly kingdom because the pursuit of the kingdom is something that the alive Christian does. So help us to do this by the power of your Spirit who dwells in us. In Jesus' name, amen.